0: This morning, I'm excited to continue a series on the book of Galatians, the gospel in Galatians. Uh, It's been a couple of months since I did part one of this series. We had uh, the blizzard and other apocalyptic events happening between then and and now. So I'm excited to continue with that study today. And uh, thank you for the prayer on my behalf, Chris. And I also pray that what I have to say can be helpful to you in some way. As we do a quick recap of what we talked about last time, just a little bit, we talked about how there's only one gospel, and that's the message of the book of Galatians, uh, sort of in a nutshell. Paul was making an impassioned plea to these churches in this region of Galatia regarding the gospel and the fact that they were turning away from that. There were a group of people called the Judaizers, or that we call the Judaizers rather, that were coming in and trying to make these Gentile Christians observe parts of the law of Moses in order to uh, be, in essence, real Christians, so to speak, and so they were following up Paul's ministry as he would come to these churches, and they were going in and discrediting him as an apostle. And so we talked about how one of the things that Paul had to do in this letter was defend the authenticity of his apostleship. And he did that basically for the entire first chapter, talking about how the gospel that he received was not according to man, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. And he defended his apostleship and his authority to show that what he taught them was the true gospel. And he said, there's not another gospel. He says, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, than that which you preached to you, let him be accursed. There in verse number eight of chapter one. And so he talks about the fact that there's not another gospel, but you're turning away from the one that I preached to you to cling to this new doctrine that these Judaizers are trying to present to you. And then we talked a little bit about obedience and talking about how the role of obedience in the life of a Christian it's not the cause of their salvation, but the result of that, and a litmus test of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so considering these things as we move forward, I want to talk this morning about what we read in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, where Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, many people in this room have this passage memorized, probably in the King James Version, because it's really hard for me to read this without looking at it, because I want to go back to the King James Version on it. But songs have been written ad nauseum. We've had many sermons preached on this. But what I want to do today is really get into the context of this, of this saying that Paul makes here, or this, this uh, verse that Paul gives us regarding our salvation, regarding the truth of the gospel. How does this fit in Paul's narrative of of showing these people what the true nature of the gospel is and why they should not turn away from that? What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? So let's back up to Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 1. We're going to find that after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who have reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So we're dealing with this issue of these people coming in and telling these Gentiles, if you want to be a real Christian, you've got to be circumcised. And what I think we're seeing here is the same thing we read about in Acts chapter 15, and that is what we call the council at Jerusalem, where all the church leaders came together and discussed this very issue. And we read there in Acts 15, verse 1, how certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's exactly what Paul was dealing with when he wrote the letter to the Galatians. And it talks about how that Paul and Barnabas and certain others went up to Jerusalem and met the apostles and the elders that were there about that question. So that's what we're dealing with here. Now notice what it says here. Not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So this issue, what Paul was telling him is, hey, I went to Jerusalem, I took Barnabas, I took Titus. We met with Peter and the other guys up there, the the church leaders. And, And Titus was a Greek. He was not a Jew, but he was not compelled. He was not forced to be circumcised to say, well, if you want to be saved, that's what you have to do. So he's showing them that what these Judaizers were teaching were false. He goes on to talk about it. This is a long passage and we don't have time to get into everything that's talked about here But what he says here at the very first, from those who seem to be something, he says in verse 2, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Now, Paul's not being rude here and saying, I don't care what anybody else thinks. What he's saying here is the church leaders and the apostles that were there, those who seem to be something, and at the end of the day, they're just another man because God shows no favoritism, but they didn't add anything to what I was teaching, I explained to them the gospel I'd been teaching to the Gentiles, and they didn't change that. They didn't say, no, there's more to it, or you're not teaching enough, or you're teaching the wrong thing. They were all on the same page. Now, there's a couple of parenthetical statements that are in there. It says, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. And then, verse 8, like Paul does sometimes, makes a parenthetical statement of. Oh, by the way, this reinforces what I'm talking about. He talks about how the fact that God was working effectively in Peter and God was working effectively in Paul, both in the same manner, one to the Jews, one to the Gentiles. But this is a sort of a sermon in and of itself, if anybody wants to take this, and that is the gospel is effective when God is in it and not effective when he's not. So that's what Paul is saying there. They saw, hey, I've been preaching the gospel, and God was working through me, and it was effective. The same gospel was being preached by Peter. God was working through him, and it was effective. And what he says there, when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. So they were all on the same page here. They realized we're all teaching the same thing. And, and, and the apostles and elders in Jerusalem said, this is great. You go to the Gentiles, We'll go to the Jews and we'll meet in the middle because we're all teaching the same thing. But then something changes. Galatians 2 and verse 11, listen to what Paul says. When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, I assume this happens after the council of Jerusalem because that's when it falls in the narrative here. Maybe it happened before, I don't know. There might be somebody here that knows. Whether it happened before or after, it doesn't really matter. Something is different here about Peter and some of the other Jews. Something has changed about their ideas on this. Verse 12 says, For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So what's going on here is Peter's been here in Antioch. There's a bunch of Jewish Christians there, excuse me, Gentile Christians there. And he's hanging out with them. They're eating together together. Um, bacon wrapped catfish whatever a good Jew's not supposed to eat I suppose I don't know if he was actually eating the food for sure he was fellowshipping with them and at the end of the day these other Jews show up of the circumcision and all of a sudden Peter withdraws himself and he begins to to go away from them and hang out with his brothers and it says that he feared the circumcision he wasn't afraid bodily of bodily harm physically it was just good old fashioned peer pressure that he was facing, and they were all caught up in it. And even Barnabas, who we read hardly a bad word about in Scripture, was carried away with this hypocrisy. And so what changed? So Paul's gonna talk to them now about the truth of the gospel. And ask this question, are we in step with it? Because that's the question that Paul is asking Peter here. Are you in step with the truth of the gospel? He says in verse number 14, when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... Now, the ESV translates that as when, they, when I saw they were not in step with the truth of the gospel, which is why I use that verbiage. Are you, are you in line with the truth of what the gospel teaches? Paul said, Peter and these other Jews were not at this point. And so he says, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? You've been here this whole time eating with them, Peter, and now all of a sudden you're withdrawing from them and saying, well, now you need to live like a Jew. He says, why are you doing that? Verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not to the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified." He says, Peter, you've forgotten what the gospel is all about. The gospel is not about me obeying the law of Moses and being justified by that. The gospel is about me having faith in Jesus Christ. And why are you trying to force this on the Gentiles when you've been living like one of them and now all of a sudden you, they need to live like a Jew? What's wrong with that? The funny thing is, is Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 15. It's not the exact words, but it's the exact same message. This is Peter. Now, therefore, verse number 10, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He's asking the same question. Why are we trying to make these Gentiles live like us and do what we couldn't do in the first place? Verse 11, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be saved in the same manner as they. So that's why it puzzles me if this was after, if Antioch was after Jerusalem, Peter really lost it for a little bit there. Either that or it was before and he really learned his lesson. Either way, it works the same for you and I today. The message is still the same. So Galatians 2 verse 18, Paul says, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Now, our main verse here, verse 20, is sort of sandwiched in this little passage we have here. But what Paul says, if I, build, if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Transgression is sin, right? For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live. What did Paul destroy? What was it that he destroyed that he didn't want to build back up again? Well, he talks about that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Paul says, I've got confidence. If confidence is found in the flesh, I've got it. Why did he have it? Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Paul says, I did Judaism better than anybody. There wasn't anybody that could out-Jew me. I did it better than anybody could have, as well as anybody could have. But look at what he says in verse 7. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Those are the things he destroyed. The old man he was, that Hebrew of the Hebrews, is dead. And so that's why Paul says in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. That old man is gone. I'm now living for Jesus. That's what the gospel is all about. In verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If this were possible, if living this way caused salvation, earned me salvation, Paul says, then Jesus died for no reason. There was no reason for Jesus to die. When we refuse to be crucified with Christ, we set aside the grace of God and we put our own performance in its place. That's what happens. And so Paul is telling this to Peter. Remember, he's still talking to Peter here. These are the words he said to Peter. I've been crucified with Christ. That old man's gone. And if righteousness comes to the law, Jesus died in vain. So let's dig down into this concept now of being crucified with Christ. And what does that really mean for us? And what does it reveal to us about the truth of the gospel? What truth does it reveal? I think it gives us some some insight into the nature of the gospel and how it works in our lives, and maybe some of the side effects that are a result of that. First of all, I think it teaches us the perpetual nature of the gospel. What do I mean by perpetual? I don't know how many of y'all remember these little whirly gigs that used to be on office desks back in the 80s. You used to see them on movies and television. For the kids here in the audience, there's no mechanics here in terms of electricity or battery power. There's no magnetism. This is all what they call perpetual motion. And so you take one of these balls and pull it out to the side and let it drop, and all of a sudden they start swinging back and forth. And they don't stop, they go on perpetually. That's what perpetual means. The only way to stop this is to put your hand on it and dissipate the kinetic energy that's going on there and then it stops. Well, the gospel works in our lives the same way. We touched on this the last time, but for those of you who weren't here and maybe as a refresher, Galatians 3 verse 1, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Remember, he just said, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. But what he's told him is, you know for a fact, I told you, I'll clearly portrayed among you that Jesus was crucified and it wasn't in vain, it was for a reason. He says in verse two, "Only this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Rhetorical question. He knows the answer, so do they. Verse three, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And we talked about this last time, but I wanna talk about it again because it's important and it's key to everything Paul is trying to get across to the Galatians in this letter. The gospel is not one and done. Now, if you were here last week, Brother Trevor gave a great sermon about the new birth and what that means, the role that baptism plays in the new birth. It's an important and critical and necessary part of the new birth. And that's where the gospel begins, but the gospel does not end there. And that's what Paul is trying to say with this verse here. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The gospel doesn't just give us a second chance where God says, okay, try again. And we can't do any better the first time than we did the second. It's not just a clean slate, not just a second chance. The work of Christ continues in our life. The gospel continues to work perpetually in our lives as a Christian. And this is just the beginning. It's a necessary part and critical step in a person becoming a child of God. But it doesn't stop. The gospel doesn't stop in the waters of baptism. It begins there and continues to work perpetually in our lives. Why else would Paul say in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, As much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul is writing this letter to Christians in Rome. And we know they were baptized Christians because he says in chapter 6 that as many of you who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We know they'd already obeyed the gospel in baptism. So why did Paul want to preach the gospel to them? Because Paul was a gospel preacher. And that's all he taught. Christ and him crucified. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, not just our initial salvation in baptism, but perpetually as we live our life crucified with Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 1 and 5, we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. We're kept safe by the power of God. What's the power of God? It's the gospel through faith for salvation. Same message. And it's important for us to understand this because the perpetual nature of the gospel, its continued work in our lives after our baptism, is what allows the next truth to be revealed to us, and that is the transformative nature of the gospel, the power of the gospel to change lives. You know Brother Jimmy Hayes was here a couple of weeks ago and talked about his wife and her conversion and how she was transformed. By the gospel, she became a different person and the people she associated with noticed that. It was a noticeable change in her life. Does the gospel have the power to change us? Look at what Paul says. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. What does he mean by that? Does that mean when in Damascus, when he was baptized, he came up out of the water and it changed the molecular structure of his body? Was his DNA rewritten? Of course not. Did he do some sort of body swap like a bad soap opera? No. Paul was the same person physically. What changed about him? It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's the difference. I'm no longer that Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm no longer the person that's trying to earn my own righteousness Now I live for Jesus. I live by faith in the son of God. Well, what caused that change in his life? What was it that made him change from that person? The knowledge of the person who loved him and gave himself for him. Nothing miraculous about the change that Paul made. Oh, miracles happened on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him there. He went blind. He received his sight later. He saw visions of Christ and Ananias coming to him and all that. But that wasn't what changed Paul. What changed Paul was the knowledge of the fact that he had been persecuting the church of the Son of God. And when he understood the fact that Jesus loved him and gave himself for him, all of a sudden, a man who could very well be considered the greatest enemy on earth that the church had faced to this point now became its greatest champion. That's the power of the transformation the gospel can make in a life. And just like it changed Paul's life, it can change our lives as well. Back in Romans 6, if we've, been planning, if we've been united together in the likeness of his death. What's the likeness of his death? Crucifixion. What's he saying here? If we've been crucified with Christ, it's the same message. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We should no longer be slaves of sin. He who has died is free. He's given the same message to the church at Rome as he's given to the Galatians. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I've made a change. I'm a different person. I'm now living for Jesus, the one that died for me, the one that freed me from sin. Live out your baptism, in other words, as Trevor talked about last week. Romans 12, when he talks about presenting your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. And what do we do? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of our mind. Nothing miraculous. Just changing the way we think about things, the way we look at the one who loved us and gave himself for us. That's the way the gospel changes lives. It's a recognition, it's a gratitude of what Jesus has done for us that we could not ever do for ourselves. Back in Galatians 2 and 14, when, when Paul was talking about the hypocrisy of, of Peter and the other, the other apostles or the other Jews that were there, what did he say? When I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Now, Paul could have said, when I saw that they were being racists, because they were. They were these Jews who looked down on these Gentiles and said, you're not as good as us. Or he could have said, when I saw they were being unfriendly and inhospitable, because they were, they were being unfriendly. He could have said, when I saw that they were being hypocritical, and he talked about their hypocrisy, but he didn't say that because that wasn't the real problem. Those were sins, those were side effects of a root problem. The root problem was which they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. They weren't in step with it. If Peter had just come to the realization of, wait a minute, why am I doing this? I'm not justified by the works of the law. They can't be justified by the works of the law either. We're justified by our faith in Jesus Christ. When he comes to that realization, all of a sudden the the reason for their hypocrisy goes away. The reason for the unfriendliness goes away. The reason for their racism goes away. Because we're all the one in Christ Jesus. And I submit to you today that when we look at our own lives and see sin there, the way to get overcome that sin is not to think in and of ourselves, I've got to overcome this sin. I've got to have the willpower. I've got to be a better person. I've got to figure out a way to do this. Too many times we do that, and we're going to fail every single time because we can't do it without Christ. If you've got a problem in your life with anger anger, or lust, or envy, or telling the truth, or any other thing, the way to overcome that is to be straightforward about the truth of the gospel. To let your relationship with Jesus and your realization of what he's done for you, the one who loved you and gave himself for you, let that be your motivation. That's where the power to change lives comes from, not from our own willpower or ability to overcome. We won't be able to do it without Christ. And that leads me to my final thing I wanna talk about this morning and that is the certain nature of the gospel. We live in a world of uncertainty. There's so many things that, that we doubt and we have a right to doubt. Can we trust the people that we work with? Can we trust our own family sometimes? Can we trust our neighbors? Can we trust the government there's a joke for you. Who can you trust? What can you be certain about? The riches of this world, the money that we have on our bank account, at the end of the day, it's just a number in some computer. What can we be certain about? I want to tell you this morning, the gospel is all about, all too often, I think we lump our salvation Lump, or lump the gospel in with the uncertain things we face in this life. And brothers and sisters, there's nothing more certain for us in this world than the gospel. Too many times we let that, that doubt and uncertainty creep in to our spiritual life. And the gospel is just the opposite of that. There's nothing more certain for you and I than our salvation when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's an implication in this passage here, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Where have you placed your faith and where have you placed your trust? If you've been crucified with Christ and if you're allowing the perpetual work of the gospel to transform you into the person that God wants you to be, why in the world would you doubt your salvation? Why would we have any uncertainty? Why would we lack confidence? You know, I lived with my grandparents when I was in college. I was driving back and forth from Pampa to Amarillo and I would sit around the, the table, the kitchen table with my mem my on. we'd drink coffee or have dinner and we'd talk about church quite often. And I remember, I don't remember the context of the conversation. I just remember one time we were talking and, and something came up about going to heaven someday and I, and I mentioned, well, you know, we all hope that we're, you know, We all think we're gonna go there. And she just kind of shrugged at me and said, I don't know about you, but I'm going there. (laughs) I don't know where you are right now, but I know for a fact I'm gonna be there. she was confident in her salvation. And there's a lesson for us to learn in what Paul's trying to teach us about the gospel. Danny, I know I'm crossing the streams again. I know you're gonna go to Romans 10. I'm sorry, but it has to be talked about. He says in verse one of chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Now, if this is the case for us, then we have a right to be concerned about our salvation. We have a right to doubt and be uncertain Because what the Jews were doing, that Israel was doing, they were ignoring the righteousness of God. They were ignoring the gospel. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And when we try to do that, then you bet you've got something to worry about. But Paul says they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is it right here. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's it. Let's break it down. He made him, he's talking about Jesus, he made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us. We've got sin in spades. But he made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? So that we might become his righteousness. That's what it comes down to. Make no mistake, it is God's righteousness, i.e. the righteousness of Jesus that saves us, not our own. That might be a hard pill to swallow for somebody, I don't know. To me, it's a great reason for us to have confidence in our salvation. John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11-13, through 13, this is the testimony. This is the testimony, he says, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Can't get any simpler than that. Eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. It's found nowhere else. Where are you putting your faith? Where are you putting your trust? Is it in yourself or is it the Son? Listen, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may have a pretty good idea that you're saved. That you may, on any given day, depending on your mood and how things are going, might toss a coin and trust to luck. That you may feel pretty good about your salvation. No, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Being crucified with Christ, the gospel, it's not guesswork. It's not maybes and mightbes. It's certain, it's sure. In in an uncertain world, when we can't rely on anything else, we can know for a fact, I've got an eternal home in heaven waiting for me because I put my faith. Listen, if we don't believe, let's go back to this screen. If we don't believe, we don't have confidence in our salvation. It's for one of two reasons. Either we're doing this and we're seeking to establish our own righteousness, in which case we're right to be worried, or else we're saying that the righteousness of Jesus isn't enough. Do we believe that? Do we believe Jesus was sinless? Do we believe he was righteous? Do we believe when we obey the gospel and become crucified with Christ that God sees his righteousness and not ours? If that's the case, why would we have any doubts? Why would we have any fears? You can know that you have eternal life. Being crucified with Christ means that we are in step or we are straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is that we are justified not by our works or the works of the law, but by our faith in Jesus Christ. By having faith in the operation of God initially in our baptism and then allowing the gospel to work perpetually in our lives, allowing the work of Christ to change us and to transform us into the person that he knows that we can be. And we accomplish that by recognizing the one who loved him and gave himself for us. And when we do that, we can have complete faith and surety, confidence, certainty that we have a home in heaven. Have you made that choice today? Have you become crucified with Christ? Paul said in Galatians 3.26, you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, have you put on Christ this morning? Have you taken the initial step of becoming crucified with Christ? There's neither Jew nor Greek, he says. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, the kind of family you're raised in, how much money you have, how much money you don't have, who your friends are. Those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. They've crucified themselves with him and they're raised to walk in newness of life. If you've not made the decision to obey the gospel, do that today. We have water ready. We have a change of clothes. We have all the conveniences. Anything we can do to facilitate your decision, the most important decision you'll ever make. You know, we make a lot of important decisions from day to day. All the way down from what am I gonna wear today to do I do this at work to... Fix some problem or you know what I, what I choose to say to someone, how I choose to treat my wife and my kids and my family. We, we make important decisions like who am I gonna spend the rest of my life with? Who am I gonna choose as a spouse? There's no more important decision you'll ever make than to choose to become crucified with Christ and have faith in the gospel of Jesus. Maybe you've done that and maybe you have doubts Maybe you have something in your life that causes you to doubt your salvation. Maybe you consider yourself a little more righteous than other people. Maybe you have a sin problem that you can't overcome. Why not be straightforward about the truth of the gospel? Why not let the gospel continue to work in your life after your baptism? Let it change you. Let it make you the person and have confidence in your salvation. If there's any need the church can help you with, please have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.